Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is with Dr. Marta Perez. Marta is a board-certified OBGYN and is starting a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine in Texas this month. She has practiced as a physician in both Missouri and Florida for years before taking this step to deepen her knowledge of complex medical conditions in pregnancy, fetal diagnosis and management, and conducting research to make pregnancy care safer. She has a passion for direct public education on social media and can be found on Instagram and YouTube, providing evidence-based educational topics about pregnancy, birth, postpartum, contraception, sexual health, and more. In today's episode, we are addressing a delicate subject, the subject of abortion. The goal of this podcast is to educate from an evidence-based position and to reach those that may have opposing views to our own. We hope that this podcast will give you the tools that you need to answer difficult questions that someone may ask you, such as, does life begin at conception? This podcast will cover the definition of abortion and medical terminology that is used with diagnosis and treatment, and how this can complicate things when it comes to anti-abortion laws. Maternal mortality rates will be discussed and how they will be affected with certain laws, understanding why women have abortions, and much, much more. Let's dive right in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. All right. Welcome, Dr. Marta Perez. We had you on last year, and you were breastfeeding your baby. (laughs) Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. It's always so great to talk to you, Lindsay. So we were chatting before we started recording and probably could have just kept chatting, (laughs) finally had to hit record. I was talking with you about how, you know, I really hope that this podcast is able to reach anyone and everyone. We want to approach this discussion 
knowing that everyone has a different view on this. And we just want to give our perspectives as healthcare providers, um, especially you, Marta, who, you know, has a deep view into um, providing care for people that are seeking abortion. And I think it's just important to understand, you know, why people are getting abortions. And then this will lead us into an area where we can actually prevent abortion by providing childcare for women so that they can go back to work. Just so many different things economically and socially. And there's just so much broken in our U.S. healthcare system that needs to be fixed <laughs> so that, you know, people <laughs> feel that they need to go to an abortion clinic to, you know, have this procedure done. I mean, there's so much nuance to this and it is not black and white. And so that is what we hope to accomplish today. We hope to give you the information that you need to be able to have discussions with, with people that may disagree with you. And we hope to come from it from a place of love and not, you know, saying that anyone's wrong or incorrect or anything like that. We just want to, yeah, come from a place of love. So I think it's helpful to start off with the definition of what an abortion is and then just briefly talk about, you know, the medical terminology that we use. Because in the ER, you know, I see a woman, she comes in, she's seven weeks pregnant, she is bleeding. Automatically, she is a threatened miss, you know, threatened abortion is what we call it. That is the name for it. That is what we code it as. That's what I write. And the paperwork she gets says she's having a threatened abortion. That is the language that is used and, you know, spontaneous abortion, threatened abortion, things like that. So if you can just address that, that would be great as well, because I think it's very helpful in understanding the medical terminology that's used to understand why making a law against abortion can be harmful for people. Absolutely. So um, medical terminology, the term abortion is the ending of a pregnancy pretty much under 20 weeks, usually. Again, there's no super hard and fast, just like everyday language we use. Sometimes language gets blurred. But in general, the term abortion or pregnancy loss, miscarriage, uh, induced abortion, termination of pregnancy, these are all terms that have somewhat interchangeable definitions um, and overlap within them. So the term abortion is any end to a pregnancy. So a spontaneous abortion is what most people call a miscarriage. That means a pregnancy loss or an end of a pregnancy that happened on its own for biological reasons. A induced abortion is a pregnancy loss that occurs because there has been an intervention to end the pregnancy, whether that's medication or procedure. You mentioned threatened abortion. That's Another one that's very common when we don't know if it will be a spontaneous abortion or the pregnancy will hang on and go on to, you know, be a pregnancy that is successful because bleeding and cramping in the, especially the first trimester can go either way. There's also missed abortion or missed miscarriage, which is just when you pick up that there has been a pregnancy loss, but the patient doesn't have any symptoms. It's just found on ultrasound before the body recognizes it and starts bleeding and cramping. So, and that's just some of them. There's incomplete, there's more. So the term abortion itself is just any term for a pregnancy ending. Colloquially, we tend to, te- you know, between patients and even doctors when they're talking to patients, um, you know, use easier to understand terminology. And unfortunately, the term abortion is very stigmatizing. So a lot of times we talk about miscarriage for spontaneous abortion. And instead of using induced abortion, a lot of people just say abortion 
for anything that intervenes to end the pregnancy, but there's a whole bunch of, you know, in between. And then there's also like, you have to remember that those are some of the things that we use as a society, but they're, what we use in society is not the same thing we use in medical terminology. So yeah, there's a lot of lot of terms that can be used. Yes. So can you explain to us how, you know, okay, so you can use your own state, for example, in Texas, how their current, you know, anti-abortion law, how that can affect people that are maybe not even, you know, that they had a miscarriage, right? They come to the emergency room and they're being treated, say they have retained products and need to have a procedure done or say... There was a recent story of a woman whose water broke and there was still a fetal heartbeat. And so they had to wait and wait and wait while this woman got sicker. So can you just kind of explain how the terminology and then making a law on this one specific word can be troublesome for uh, providers that are, you know, providing life-saving care for people that are seeking care in the emergency room or in the clinics? Yeah, absolutely. So and just a little background, too. For listeners, I've been a practicing OBGYN in both Missouri and Florida. I just moved to Texas to start a, a maternal fetal medicine fellowship, which is high risk OB. So, complicated pregnancies and postpartum, either because of fetal health conditions or maternal health conditions that are either before pregnancy established or new during the pregnancy. And so, I'll be working with high risk pregnancies. And, but unfortunately, even though we've seen the acceleration of extremely restrictive abortion laws since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health case, there have been increasingly restrictive abortion laws happening in many places in this country for many years. Without going too far into legal history, the kind of the burden was established in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where there states could pass abortion restrictions up to a certain amount of restrictiveness, but that was, you know, each law was dependent on kind of what the state decided was too much. So as a practicing doctor in Missouri, there were already severely limited abilities to access abortion in Missouri. And obviously a lot of that has all sped up in a lot of these states with much more severe laws, which with much earlier gestational limits, with the penalty of a felony, mostly for healthcare providers. But in some places, patients also at risk, like a lot of the states, such as Texas, Texas's SB8 has that very unique law, which passed before the Roe overturning, saying that people can sue each other, basically, if they aid and abet in someone terminating their pregnancy. So there's been a lot of, there are a lot of anti-abortion laws. They're sped up now since Roe. It's been such a nightmare for OBGYNs like myself and anyone who participates in healthcare, because it's really scary that you could be accused of a felony. Even if you know right. you're doing the right thing, someone who doesn't have medical training can be the person accusing you and going through a legal process when, mm -hmm. you know, you've sore enough to do new harm. You've worked, you work really, really hard to protect and care for people the right way. Really scary. So here's an example of like how these laws, how someone from that doesn't have medical training can say, oh, well, it shouldn't impact miscarriage care. A miscarriage is different or it shouldn't impact an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy is different. So here's an example. I had a friend who, multiple providers actually, OBGYNs in Texas have said they've diagnosed an ectopic pregnancy and you can treat an ectopic pregnancy, which cannot be a viable pregnancy, right? We can't make it a safe pregnancy. It's an unsafe and if untreated can lead to massive hemorrhage and death. It's the number one cause of death in the first trimester. 
a person has a clear-cut ectopic pregnancy and there's two options for treatment. One is medical treatment with methotrexate. You don't have to have surgery. The second, mm-hmm. which could be an only option if it's far enough along that it ruptured, is with surgery. So many patients, if they are stable and at a time when they can choose medicine, will want to use methotrexate. So the doctor says, yes, okay, you're stable for methotrexate. Let me prescribe it so that you can have that. And they, the patient cannot get the prescription filled because a pharmacist... Mm-hmm might be really, really nervous that someone would sue them or accuse them of a felony for giving a medicine that can end a pregnancy. In this case, we need to end the pregnancy to save the person's life and to prevent them from having a life-threatening hemorrhage and lose their fallopian tube, which negatively affects their fertility. But the pharmacist is scared for their own well-being. And then this person is driving around to pharmacies all over the area, delaying their care and possibly putting them at risk for rupture. A similar thing has been happened with miscarriage care. So if you have a, you know, your doctor diagnoses a miscarriage and you have the options of waiting for your body to pass it, if you're not already bleeding and cramping, using medication to either expedite or finish the process or having a certain, you know, procedure, a DNC. And a lot of people prefer medication. And we use the same medications used for an induced abortion in miscarriage care all the time. They're the most effective medicines with very great safety profiles, but they can't get their medicine filled because nobody wants to go out on a limb and say, oh, well, I don't know if the doctor prescribed this for an induced abortion or a miscarriage. And of course they should, the pharmacist should trust the doctor, but there's so much in between when you could be personally liable. I don't blame the pharmacist. I blame lawmakers who have decided to really insert themselves into women's healthcare and then just say, well, this is black and white because it's really not. And I think there's a lot more examples. I'm, you know, spent many, many years becoming many, many hours becoming an OBGYN. And I've heard a lot of fear from emergency room providers who, yes, you know, pregnancy loss care is a part of what they see, but they're also scared that if they misinterpret a lab value or an ultrasound finding, they don't want to treat the patient. So there was a your time story, you know, last week of a patient who in the emergency room, she felt like she was, she was in so much pain. She was hemorrhaging and the emergency room didn't feel comfortable giving her medication to kind of help along her miscarriage because they couldn't be certain it was a miscarriage and were probably scared for their own well-being. There's just so many examples of, I think it's easy for someone who's never worked in healthcare and never worked in reproductive health to say, oh, but a miscarriage and an ectopic, they're different. But when the rubber hits the road of a patient trying to access their care, there's still huge barriers. Yeah. So there's like a few things I want to say about that. Let's start with, I really want to talk about from a provider standpoint, I don't like when they say, you know, you hear a lot about like exception for the mother, exception for the life of the mother. And, you know, it's easy for people, like you said, that are not in medical care to say, oh, and you hear this a lot. At least I've heard this a lot recently. I'm sure you have too, Marta, where people say, well, you know, you took an oath. You would have to save my life. You would have to save that person's life. And there is just so much going on behind that. Like you said, I mean, People are worried that they are going to be charged with a felony. They go to prison. They have a family, right? Can you imagine having a family and then performing your job to save someone's life and then maybe having to go to jail for it because of someone and their political view? I mean, well, it's also, it's not even their political view. It's their subjective medicine is 
gray. You're not completely healthy and then you're dead. Yeah. And there's not like a completely healthy and then like a countdown, like one hour till death where you can like intervene. It's all a gray zone. Yeah. And what makes me laugh, not laugh, <laughs> laugh in a uh, resigned way, is if you really said my intent in the law is to only allow someone to induce abortion if it's to save their life. Well, then why? C- then it should be every pregnancy someone was allowed to choose abortion because it is your risk of death with pregnancy and birth are 14 times higher than with induced abortion. Which is crazy. So every yeah. single pregnancy carries the possibility of death and is certainly much riskier than either induced abortion or not being pregnant. So I don't understand why you have that, you made a law and then when all of pregnancy and birth and postpartum are so medically risky, especially in this country, which is a whole different topic that maybe we can talk about another time. But that's one hand. The other side of it too is that obviously someone's health is a gray zone. So how how close to death does a patient have to be Right. And who's, who's defining that and who's defining it and you know, how many liters of blood do they have to lose? How severe does their kidney failure from lupus that they had, you know, before even getting pregnant have to be, how, how close to death does someone have to be before you intervene? Because we don't say, oh, you have a stage one breast cancer, but we're not going to start chemo until you're stage three. No, you want to prevent that person from ever being stage three. You want to keep them cancer free. You want to add decades to their lives, not just months, you know, versus if you already come in with stage four breast cancer, of course you start chemo right away and you're hoping to add time to their life or whatever. So everything in life, everything in medicine is a gray zone. And when you have these laws that are, they just don't meet the clinical scenario, it's going to negatively affect. And a study already came out of Texas showing that when people were made to wait, patients got sicker. They had more problems that risked their lives and risked their well-being or their ability to have future children because people waited to intervene because of these laws. So mm-hmm. it's really frustrating. And unfortunately, I, I want to talk about kind of the moral uh, abortion is such a complicated topic for people. I understand that more than anyone. I told you before the intro, you know, I went to Catholic school my whole life. I definitely understand this topic is so sensitive and it has so many moral implications. And what I see as a doctor is that a lot of patients, something comes up where medically an abor- induced abortion may be what's recommended, or at least one of the treatment options for a problem that someone didn't anticipate. And the first thing they say is I would never have an abortion. Mm-hmm. And you say, that's fine. You know, doctors give, of course, patients choices on what their options are. And everyone has the choice mm-hmm. or may not have the choice now, <laughs> but they should have right. the choice. And then a lot of times for a lot of situations, when the person understands that they didn't know that they could be so close to get death, leaving their other children orphaned, they didn't mm-hmm. know that this would mean carrying a fetus who may die during pregnancy each day. You don't know, is my fetus dead today or die minutes or hours after birth? They didn't know that things like this could happen. And you, and I have often seen patients who the first thing they say is I would never get an abortion. Okay. And then, you know, at the end of a counseling session or by the next visit, they say the healthiest thing for me and my family is ending this pregnancy with, you know, with grief. (laughs) I didn't want that. I never thought I wanted that, but that is what is the healthiest and best thing for my family and the most compassionate thing for this fetus. So there's just so many 
situations that people who aren't in medicine and aren't in honestly in reproductive medicine and don't understand about situations. If I could count on one hand, all the patients that said I would never have an abortion that chose abortion because it was the best choice for their family. Like I would run out of fingers and toes and Mm -hmm. it just, it's so much more complex than anyone realizes. And if you have empathy and compassion for certain people's situations, you would realize that these are choices that are hard to make a lot of the time for some people and adding leaps and hoops just increases trauma. I mean, I think the story that got national headlines from, you know, two weeks ago was a good indication of that. Like a 10 year old rape victim Mm -hmm. had to figure out a way to travel to a strain to a different location to get the care that they needed. I think everyone would agree. That's not something we want in our society, but I, I just to talk on the moral framework of it just for a second. So I think, you know, as a doctor, I have the and as an OBGYN who sees all t- types of outcomes for pregnancy and birth and pregnancies, whether planned for or unplanned for, and patients make all sorts of choices for all sorts of reasons. And I support mm-hmm. that. A lot of people feel that, and especially if they grew up Christian, that abortion is wrong, that there is a moral aspect to abortion that is wrong in their religion. But it's really important to realize that it is not for other people. I like Mm -hmm. to draw like a few different parallels to it. So certain religions have moral beliefs around food, that eating a certain foods or certain foods prepared certain ways could be either moral or immoral if prepared the wrong ways or the wrong type of food. And that is totally fine, but we don't want to prevent everyone from having choices in what they eat. You know, vegans are a great example. It may not be actually a religion, but like many people feel really a moral belief behind the morality of eating animals or animal products, whereas other people don't. And scientifically, there is no one time when life begins. There's no one point. It's not fertilization. We don't even know how fertilization happens (laughs) when it happens. The only way to test for pregnancy is a pregnancy test, which happens after implantation in the uterus or elsewhere after implantation, not at the time of fertilization. It's not, you know, when you can capture electric beats that would, will go on to become a heartbeat, but are not yet. It's not a specific 24 weeks, but any one person morally can decide when the spiritual aspect of what makes a human being unique begins. And different religions have different interpretations of that. Just like a lot of people are sort of alarmed to hear that like death doesn't always have one specific diagnosis in medicine, right? You can be brain dead with your heart Mm -hmm. still beating really strong, Mm -hmm. right? So, so there's no one exact point when life begins at the beginning and no one certain point where life begins at the end, especially in an era of modern technology where we can assess for and pick up for all different things, both at the beginning and end of life. And so I think I totally support all my patients who say, I believe life begins at conception. I'm, I think that's wonderful. Your religious belief, I support because you have every freedom to practice your religion. But somebody else's religion, like Judaism, perhaps, says life begins and the specialness of a human being happens at the time of birth. And there's a bunch in between, too. Most of my friends who are Muslim have told me Islam, it's 
roughly interpreted as about the fourth month when that becomes a separate human life that holds specialness. And before that, it is not. So there's a range of really beliefs, but there's no one time when life begins. There's no one time where you say scientifically, this is a separate human being. And it's a religious belief to give that being equal rights as the pregnant person who is carrying them, who is established person who we all should agree has rights and can make decisions. One other thing I like drawing as a, as a moral parallel to abortion is that hundreds slash thousands of people every year die of kidney disease in this country. You can receive a kidney transplant and that radically extends, if not saves your life, depending on the underlying cause of the kidney disease. And for a living donor to donate a kidney, it takes weeks slash months of an invasive medical event. And then many times their health is normal afterwards, but you're more at risk for health conditions given only one kidney because you gave one to someone else. And so to say that a pregnant person, someone newly pregnant, whether that's, you know, five weeks, six weeks pregnant, or 18 weeks pregnant, that they have to give up their body for an invasive medical event to save the life of the thing inside them. And they can be found guilty of a crime if they do not. It doesn't make sense to me why not, why we don't have mandated kidney transplants, right? Because we would expect everyone to give up their bodily autonomy, mostly temporarily, but not really. Same with pregnancy. Most people end up recovering from pregnancy physically, but not everyone. Some people suffer and die or have lifelong medical conditions that they got from Mm -hmm. being pregnant. If women and people with uteruses are expected to give up their body autonomy for this potential human being, then why isn't everyone expected to give up their body autonomy to save everyone suffering from kidney disease? Or, you know, people need livers too, right? People need different transplants. So yeah, so it's it's the same bodily autonomy, whether or not you think that a fetus is a distinct individual with a human specialness is a religious belief, but you have to, you can't make a fetus more special than the autonomy of the individual person. So if you really believe that a, a fetus supersedes the bodily autonomy of the pregnant individual, wouldn't it make sense that you believe that nobody truly has body autonomy if there's anything one person can do to save the life of another person? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, that's why I think that my friends or family who are kind of like, well, it's killing a, a unique human being, you know, it's, you'll say murdering babies, but like, it's ending the life of a unique human being to have a termination of pregnancy. I draw the line, well, you're limiting the life of a unique human being by not giving, offering your kidney. Like for any person that doesn't have kidney disease, there's going to be somebody out there who needs a kidney that's a match for you that you could give Mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. But we are not expecting you to, and we're not accusing you of a felony if you don't. Mm -hmm. So even if you, and you're responsible for the death of that unique human being because you didn't give them your kidney, thousands and thousands of people need kidneys. So I think that like, I absolutely, I know that's like, it's such a, uh, sometimes the argument that it's a life and it's unique shuts down the conversation, but that's not the end of the conversation at all. I think it's totally fine if someone believes that, but the next part is, well, then what, what limits do you impose on bodily autonomy for another individual? Because often what we get to the bottom of is really, we want certain types of people to bear consequences for sexual behavior, which is a totally different topic that a lot of people feel strongly about too, but that's what it actually comes down to. 
Yes. And then of course, all the things you mentioned in the beginning where a lot of people don't have, we don't support families in this country. We don't, we have terrible healthcare. We have terrible postpartum support. We have terrible early childhood care and support and education. So, you know, I think the other side is always so frustrating because it's like, well, you've been pushing these lockers. You're very active and you have a lot of power in politics. Like where have you been with universal healthcare and, you know, paid family leave and things we know saves lives. Where, where are you with that? You know? So, yeah. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. Being a mother was really lonely in the beginning. I had no idea what I was doing. It was hard to find others to confide in and talk to. Fast forward almost nine years and four kids later, life is definitely crazy in a good way. And I truly believe in having that motherhood community and support. Finding a therapist you can trust and talk to is incredibly therapeutic and a part of taking care of you. You will be a better mother, partner, and friend when you take care of yourself. And this is just one of the ways you can do that. With BetterHelp, you can log in and send a message to your therapist at any time. I know that it's important to be able to connect with your therapist. So BetterHelp allows you to change therapists if needed, free of charge. You can easily schedule to talk to your therapist online with a video or phone session. So you don't need to travel to an appointment saving you time. It's also more affordable than your typical offline therapy, and they also have financial aid available as well. If you want to try it out, my listeners can get 10% off their first month with the link in my show notes. That website link is betterhelp.com slash Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y. That's 10% off your first month of therapy at betterhelp.com slash Lindsay. Let me know if you try it. I would love to know your thoughts. Okay. I have so many things. <laughs> so many things. Yeah. Hit me with some of the questions. <laughs> yeah. So a few things first. So I love that you brought up religion and I love that you brought up where, you know, major religious groups where they stand on abortion, because I feel like this is something that is very important to talk about because we are putting people in a position in these certain states of not being able to fully practice their religion. So if somebody believes, you know, there, I actually brought up the Pew Research Center has everything broken down. I actually can link to it in the show notes, but it just gives a little chart of like, you know, which religion believes what. So if you are, let's see here, a conservative Judaism, they support abortion rights with very few or no limits. So if you are of that religion and you are in a state where you are not able to practice, fully practice your religious belief, that is a problem. You know, and I, I, I listened to a podcast fairly recently and it was actually, it was two people that were giving their religious view and how they, you know, their religious view, they were support in support of abortion rights. And they were like, we are going to sue the state because we are not able to fully practice our religion. And so it's just getting very, very complicated, you know, from that governmental perspective, because it's murky water. Like there's just no, it's all like this grayness. And, you know, like you said earlier, physicians are just, and providers that provide this care are just so scared of what might happen, even though they know that what they're doing is the right thing for the patient. Absolutely. And I had wanted to say earlier too, when you were giving your examples, it's, it's very hard to know if a person comes to you. So say this is in the emergency room and say it's in a state where, um, like in Texas, where there is 
a band very early, you don't know if this person that's eight weeks pregnant is coming in and had taken you know, this abortion medication that they received from, you know, say overseas, um, and they took that medication in an attempt to abort, but then had too much bleeding or cramping and got scared and came to the emergency room. Or that person did not try to, you know, induce an abortion, did not take any medication, but they're presenting the same as that. There's no way for you to ever tell being the provider of that patient. Yeah. And honestly, you should not never ask to. Right. If no. anyone is a healthcare provider in any of these red states, there is absolutely no reason that you should or have to or are mandated to or anything ask. You never have to. So that's just my PSA about that. Also, right off that, I want you to let us know, are healthcare workers that are providing this care mandated to tell the state if you're performing an abortion on a patient? So, well, there's been longstanding laws about paperwork and mandatory reporting of induced abortions. So yes, in many states, there is all this crazy paperwork I've had to fill out. It involves lying to patients, making them sign things that are factually incorrect, all this kind of stuff. But like in terms of if you're seeing a patient who it's unclear if they had taken medicine to induce abortion themselves or are having a spontaneous pregnancy loss, no, that there's no mm-hmm. required reporting about that, you know, about how exactly this came, like the patient, you describe the patient's symptoms, what they're having, what their prognosis, what their treatment is, et cetera. But there's no, you don't have to mandatory report that I know of in each state. I've, because I mean, what we don't ask extents, it would just be outside the limits of the HPI really. I Mm -hmm, mean, mm -hmm. so I'm not aware of that, but yes, if you are performing induced abortions, yes, there is state mandated paperwork and that is Mm -hmm. not good for patient care. It's long story. I've had to do this paperwork myself and it's painful. Medically Mm -hmm. inaccurate, very vague, et cetera. But anyway. Yeah. I wanted to go back to as well, just stating this because I I don't know if many people realize this, but the maternal mortality rate in the US is higher than that of any other developed nation, which is, I mean, I found this out a couple of years ago. I mean, I was in my 30s when I found this out and I was completely awestricken. Like to, to live in the United States of America and have approximately 700 people die annually because of a pregnancy related complication is wild to me, right? And I was just reading um, recently, I think it was last week. So Texas ranks one of the worst states in the country for Mm -hmm. maternal mortality. Um, Obviously, you know that. And it seems to me that most of the states that have the strictest anti-abortion laws have some of the highest maternal mortality rates. So how do you feel that these laws that are being put in place. Again, some of these states have had these laws. Some are just more strict than they were before. But how do you think that will affect the maternal mortality rate, even when they're already, you know, some of the worst in the country? Is this going to affect them even more? What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And there's actually been some really great uh, research on this. So you are exactly right. The it's there's it's not a mystery why the maternal mortality rates in this country are so much higher than other developed nations. Most of it has to do with universal health care. Many people don't have access to insurance and healthcare access, especially young people. Now, m- pregnancy is a Medicaid qualifying event, but often that means once your pregnancy is confirmed after getting in with a doctor, you do a bunch of paperwork and then it becomes activated and then postpartum you lose it again. So we don't have access to medical care. I have a lot of patients that have chronic medical conditions that may lack access to healthcare 
So they're both sicker going into their next pregnancy because they haven't had access to medications. Diabetes is a really great example of that. I have a lot of patients mm-hmm. really struggling to afford insulin and treat their diabetes when they're not pregnant. And so in between, you know, pregnancy number one and two or two and three or whatever, they have not taken as good care of their diabetes because they cannot afford to. And now they have such bad kidney disease that really pregnancy is a risk to their life of dying of pregnancy complications also due to their kidney disease. That's like one hard and fast, like Mm -hmm. one also like postpartum cardiomyopathy, the, a lot of the drugs for your heart, when you've had a heart condition in pregnancy and you're trying to manage it, if you lose access to insurance, Mm -hmm. you may not have managed it that well. And that next pregnancy really raises your risk of dying due to pregnancy related heart failure, all sorts of examples of this. And if you've never heard stories like this, you're just like lucky and privileged because I see it all the time as a doctor. Yeah. Yep. And so pregnancies, like our country has a big problem with healthcare access. There's also some issues with access from a rural versus city, from socioeconomic transportation. There's just so much less social support, especially with healthcare mm-hmm. in our country compared to other developed nations. And many people who are accessing abortion are doing so because of a health condition and because they're from a group that already has a higher risk of death with pregnancy and birth mm-hmm. than somebody else. So like the estimation is that the increase in death will be much higher and go up by three times for the people who are already at the highest risk in pregnancy, such as black and brown women and socioeconomically disadvantaged people. And so, and even just these laws saying, well, you know, well, when they get close to death, then you can have an abortion. Abortion is incredibly safe, especially in the first trimester. 92% of abortions happen in the first trimester. It's actually has a lower rate of complications than getting your wisdom teeth removed or getting a root canal, like a common dental procedure. The complications mm-hmm. are less than that, which is mm-hmm. many people are like, oh, wow, because they've been fed a lot of misinformation that abortion is dangerous or unsafe, and it's not. But the longer you delay treatment, the longer you delay having an abortion, it is a more complicated procedure. It's also a more costly procedure that you may not be able to access. So you know, I've had a patient who has heart failure. We quoted her about a 30% risk of death. She actually wanted more children, but she was like, I also want to not die on the children I have. She was really sad that her family size was being limited by her health condition. And so she was like, well, I, I want to be around for my other kids. I will get an abortion, but she couldn't afford an abortion delayed another month trying to find the money. Mm. And then she found the money for the, you know, what it would have taken to have an eight week abortion, but then she was 12 weeks and could no longer take the medicine. So then she had trouble affording. Mm. So she basically, yeah, in an inability to have, (laughs) to find funds to get the thing that would save her life went out of the time period. She was too late in pregnancy to have it. So you have like just so many layered examples of the people who are already the sickest and need this care the most are going to get sicker and have a higher rate. It'll just increase inequality compared to someone who already has a low risk of death because they've never been uninsured in their life and they don't have any medical conditions. And unfortunately, they live in a restrictive state, but they just bought a plane ticket for tomorrow morning and they'll be on their way to Illinois Mm -hmm. or New York or Massachusetts or California tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, they have paid time off work, too. They can use their sick days. They're still paid. They're not. Right. They're not going to lose their job. Right. Right. Yeah. So. I had what you mentioned healthcare coverage. And just recently, um, Texas is among like 12 or 13 states that declined to expand their Medicaid coverage. So yep. 
the state did a review and recommended that it should be extended. Medicare, Medicaid should be extended postpartum to one year versus I don't know what it was before. Was it six weeks? I don't remember. You know, to, it's to six cover to those weeks in most states. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it would cover those cardiovascular, those coronary conditions that happen in that six week to 12 months after birth period. And they declined it. And so when they, and you know, it's even worse, Lindsay, that state doesn't really have to really pay for it because the federal government will help, will help subsidize that increase in cost, um, which is a law that was passed during the pandemic. So the federal government is actually going to step in and help any states. Medicaid is administered by the states, but any states that, that do expand their Medicaid until a year postpartum, which only a handful had done before this law passed on their own volition, which Mm -hmm. is excellent, you know, places Mm -hmm. like California, probably Mm -hmm. Massachusetts too. I'm not familiar with every state in their laws. Guttmacher Institute is a great place to look at this. Um, But the federal government actually said, we'll help you pay for it for the states. So like, not only will it help your citizens be healthier and have more medical coverage and decrease maternal mortality and infant mortality, probably, we will help you pay for it. And the states still don't want to do it. And why is that? Why is that? It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, have you read the Turnaway study? Yeah, I haven't read the whole book, but like I've been learning about the Turnaway study for so many years because it is absolutely so inherent to understanding abortion and access to abortion. I'm probably only like a third of the way through, um, but I, it's I feel like it's a crucial book for pretty much every single person to to read because oh, I agree. it's so, you know, Diane, Diane Foster, she worked with a, a lot of other people on this, this study that took 10 years and they took over a thousand women and they go through the consequences of having or being denied an abortion. And yeah, they capture the women who are, who are trying to access abortion. So they're, yes, someone is trying to access abortion they're either able to access and have their abortion, which is one group of people they studied, or they're unable right. to access their abortion and either for cost reasons or they're, you know, the law in the state says 24 weeks only and under and they're 25 weeks, whatever. So half the people were able to access their abortion and half the people were not, but they all intended to have an abortion. Yes. And I mean, I, I absolutely love it. I feel like it comes from a place where it's, science-based. I mean, we're, we're talking yep, to these women, we're following it's them through study. over 10 years, following up with women that were denied an abortion 10 years ago and saying, how do you feel about this? How have you been affected by this socially, economically, uh, mentally, physically? How have you been affected by this? And I just feel like it's something where if you are someone who, again, believes life begins at a, a conception or whatever you know your belief might be, I think it's just an important read to kind of understand it kind of gives you insight into how, walking in someone else's shoes. And I think it can be very difficult, you know, to do that sometimes and and to say, well, I think this is wrong, so I don't care what the circumstances were or what have you. And under and like you said earlier, like I understand that this might be your religious point of view or what have you, but to read this and just kind of understand it, I think is so important. And there's a lot of really beautiful things they found. Like one, they found yeah. that people who the people who were able to access the abortion, some of them were at a federal poverty level and were able to come out of it. Right. And you are extremely unlikely to do that if you were not able to access the abortion. So these are, you know, people, students trying to get financial footing, having a child is such a financial sacrifice in our country, a huge setback. 
that right. it's, you know, the poverty difference. Another really interesting thing too, is that the people who were continued their pregnancy, they were more likely to have serious pregnancy complications and die. They're more likely to die. Right. Right. And a really tragic one, because it's not just about the pregnant person, but also about generations is that the people who are unable to access their abortion were more likely to stay in intimate partner violence scenarios, which is not only a risk to them, you know, having abuse, but it's a risk to their child. They're staying and raising exactly. their child in an envi- in an unsafe environment compared right. to the people who are able to terminate their pregnancies. And many people who, you know, 66% of people who terminate their pregnancies in America already have children. Right. They are doing it because they want to protect the life that they are building for their family. Right. And many people who access abortion are go on to have pregnancies later when their situation is different, when they're with a non-abusive partner, when they're financially more secure, et cetera. They know that they want to raise their raise their children in a certain context, and that context may not be right now. So like a lot right. of times, you know, accessing abortion gets framed as this, you know, the antithesis of parenting when really it goes hand in hand with a parenting decision, just like any other hard parenting decision a lot of parents make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way that she has it set up too, because it goes through like there's one chapter and it describes someone's, you know, just their whole entire experience. And then the next chapter will be data that supports what they found. And then the next chapter is on their story of, you know, somebody who who went through it and what their outcome was. And it's just like this beautiful. Back I need and to forth read the book between- then because. I only know the data and I don't know, like I see the personal experiences in like my life and my practice, but yeah. it sounds like it just reads really nice. I need to read. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I mean, so far it's great. I'm, I'm about like a third of the way through. I wanted to get through the whole thing before having this conversation because it's really great. But I mean, I just started this weekend and I only got, only got a third of the way through. Hey, another big thing from the turnaway study that I know you wanted to mention was mental health. Yes. And abortion. Yes. yes. So I wanted to address that kind of as a as a a whole let me just preface it with this. Someone had messaged me and I really love to have these conversations with people that you know don't agree with me. I I welcome it with open arms. I like to have these discussions because I love to see their side of it. I want to understand their side of it. So you know, this person had reached out to me and said, listen, you're pushing this on people. Um, you know, this is through my newsletter where I'll do a lot of reproductive rights advocacy. And so she responded and said, you know, I can't believe that you're doing this because people that have abortions have an increased risk of infertility. They have an increased risk of breast cancer and they have an increased risk of mental illness long term. And there is absolutely no scientific evidence or data to support this whatsoever. And so I wanted to talk to you briefly about the fact that there are, first of all, I will say, and my, um, I'm very naive. I live in Connecticut and I had never even known or heard about the fact that there are government mandated counseling sessions in certain states where they will actually make you as the provider give this information to your patient, which is completely not based off of any scientific evidence or fact. And you have to give this information to your patients before you perform an abortion for them. So I would love to talk to you about that because that made me really upset because as somebody who practices evidence-based medicine, this just seems so wrong on every level and it's not giving people the right information. So in some states, you just have to give them a packet and like sign here that you receive the packet. You don't have to read it. 
Um, and it has untrue things in it. In some states, you actually have to say the things, even though they're untrue. And so the provider has to be like, I'm, I'm state mandated to read these statements to you. And then at the end you say, but many of them are not true or like number three and number six are medically untrue. Yeah. So that, that, that happens in a lot of states, unfortunately, and it did happen in Missouri, but yeah. So to take each of those apart, there's absolutely no connection between having an induced abortion and infertility at all. There is, what was the other one? Breast cancer. Uh, Increased risk of breast cancer. Yes. There is not an increased risk of breast cancer, which we know based on really high quality data. I will say that there was earlier low quality data suggesting a possible risk, but that had major major methodological flaws. So that same reason we don't like still do bloodletting as a part of treatment for medical conditions, or most of them, we don't rely on bad data that is outdated and not done well. So there's good data showing there's absolutely no risk. And then for mental health difficulties, there's again, not data to suggest that those accessing abortion have worse mental health. In fact, most people as a turnaway study, I think it came from the turnaway study Mm -hmm. also, but it may have come from a different study, but they followed people a year and years after their induced abortion. And they, they did not have a higher rate of mental health conditions and they did not regret their decision overwhelmingly. I think the statistics like 95% or 97% or something. And Additionally, I think we all know, most of your listeners are already parents, that the mental health risks with pregnancy and postpartum are, mm-hmm. I mean, it is one of- Far outweigh. Being mm-hmm. pregnant and having a baby is probably the most mental health risky thing someone does that Could is do. like a normal activity. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. the mental health risks of, and and we know that like financial instability, low social support are huge risk factors for postpartum depression and postpartum Mm -hmm. and peripartum mental health conditions. So absolutely the risk is much bigger there with pregnancy and birth than with an induced abortion. Yeah. And like you said, mental illness, you know, whatever it might be, anxiety, depression, or something more severe, much more common in somebody that's pregnant or, or postpartum. And then you add on to the fact that they were forced to give birth to a baby that they didn't want, right? So I can't I can't imagine what type of mental capacity that would take to even get through that. I wish they would, I don't think there is that I know of a study that kind of focuses on that, you know, like what the increased risk would be of mental mental illness if you were forced birth as opposed to somebody who what you know wanted the pregnancy and went through the pregnancy but then ended up with you know postpartum depression is it an increased risk to somebody who was you know forced to have that pregnancy and that baby um, as opposed to somebody who wasn't it would be an interesting I know because it's a little harder to get higher than the current averages for a peripartum mood disorder which are yeah. about sitting at 1 in 4 at this point especially since right. 2020 it was like 1 in 7 which everyone recognized was probably still an undercall but the data that came out of people who've been pregnant since 2020 shows that actually the rate is twice that. So yeah, we're not. Oh, for sure. (laughs) I mean, that that would be like a whole nother podcast episode, right? Because right now we only have, typically, we only have this one checkup at six weeks. And if you were to follow up at say two months, three months, four months, six months plus, you would be getting a whole nother you know, category of women who are realizing that there's something wrong. You know, six weeks postpartum, you don't even know. After a first child, you have no idea what's like, you are just trying to survive. You're not thinking about, oh, I'm depressed or, oh, I'm like, that is the last thing you're thinking of. So when you're filling out that little questionnaire, it's like crazy to me that you're even catching any of them because it's like, 
You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Anyways, that's like you said, a totally different, totally different discussion. But I think it just goes to show that there's definitely not a mental health risk for with abortion, especially compared to pregnancy. Yes. I wanted to touch on briefly, you know, I think, as I had mentioned very earlier on, understanding why women have or people have abortions is really important if you want to decrease the amount of abortions that are occurring, right? So, so for people that, you know, don't agree with abortion, they think it's wrong and all of that, I think focusing on why people have them to begin with is so important because that mm-hmm. is the way to decrease them. You know, we know from from past laws and from from past countries that have passed these laws that outlawing abortion doesn't significantly decrease the number that are actually occurring. They just occur illegally, they occur more dangerously and more people are effective negatively and may die as a um, result. So, I wanted to talk to you about this to me is is just is crazy. So, I wanted to talk to you about it, but As many people know, last week, 195 Republicans voted against a House bill codifying the right to contraceptive use into federal law. So I am trying so deeply to understand why we are, you know, in some states abandoning abortion and also saying, oh, yeah, and we're not going to give you the right to contraception. What do you think would happen in a world where federally, say, we are banning both? I mean, it really just, like you said, makes it makes no sense from a policy level. Um, we know that access to quality sex education and access to accessible contraception, both from an affordability standpoint and from a, you know, where can I find it? How quickly can I get it when I need it? Those are the ways to prevent unintended pregnancy. And many abortions, certainly not all abortions, but many abortions are due to unintended pregnancy. So if you can reduce unintended pregnancy by both both sides of a of this coin knowing when and how pregnancy occurs and being able to easily take steps to prevent pregnancy will decrease some abortions as well. But unfortunately, we aren't great at either of those things in this country. A lot of states have very poor sex ed in schools among young people. And, you know, contraception, some people can get at free or reduced cost clinics if they don't have insurance, but we have such a huge uninsured population. We don't in most states have many forms of contraception available over the counter. Um, Although there is Mm -hmm. a move towards that, which is great, like birth control pills over the counter. Of course, condoms are available over the counter, but they're, you know, they have a cost and you still have to find a, a drugstore. And the the rubber hits the road with this law because, you know, there's just a news story saying a married couple couldn't access condoms because the Walgreens checkout oh, clerk, who was the only one working, that, yeah. you know, at 9 p.m. or whatever, refused to sell them because of his moral. So, like, that's why these things, it's like, well, you know, so unintended pregnancies are a reason for abortion. If we can reduce those, we can decrease abortion numbers. And that's, like, very helpful. Now, not yeah. all abortions are due to unintended pregnancies. And even the mo- even the most highly effective contraceptive methods are 99.8% effective. There's still like a point, a right, 0.02% of right. the time. So, yeah. But yeah, that's like one of the things that's very much a, uh, a great opportunity for people who don't, who really believe that their mission is to decrease abortions in society is a great opportunity is to increase sex education and access to contraception. So it really does not make sense. Mm-hmm. to limit those things. Now, I want to ask you as a provider 
that is currently, well, has been in Missouri, has been in Florida, and now in Texas. What has been your, like, how do you feel about everything going on right now? Like, what are your thoughts? You know, a lot of people ask me, so I, I'm going back to fellowship. So that's like a match process. So kind of like sorority rush. I'm not going to get extensively into it. But like, if I regret choosing Texas or coming to Texas, and the answer is that, you know, I am someone who has a passion for advocacy, and I am going to fight to get my patients the care that they need. But it's really, really, really hard to, you know, I, I start work next week in Texas, I'm just making this transition. But in Missouri, there's already been so many restrictive abortion laws. I've seen so many patients who are like the examples of the turnaway study who wanted to access abortion, but were unable Mm -hmm. to because of cost and uh, access, Mm -hmm. um, you know, living rurally, et cetera. And it's really hard to see preventable suffering when we have the tools to be able to stop it. And we can't, you know, it's like many people may know, or maybe they don't, there's a religion called Jehovah's Witnesses and they, a part of their religion is that the essence of a person's soul is in their blood. So these individuals don't accept blood transfusions, Mm -hmm. which is, which is totally fine. But I think there's been so many healthcare providers that have watched someone of that faith die in front of them who could have received a blood transfusion and lived. And that is such a horrible feeling, but you know, it was the person's choice and their spiritual belief and their, for them, their ticket to heaven. And, um, you know, even though it's painful to watch someone suffer and die from something that was preventable, you at least know this is what the patient wanted. wanted This is, this is what the patient wanted. And many times you have opportunities to talk to the patient, confirm that's what they wanted over and over again. And, and they are doing what they, they chose, you know, same with maybe a patient who doesn't accept, um, cancer treatment and, and chooses something else. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so hard to lose people and to see them suffer, but at least, you know, they're, they're making a choice. And when you see people lose things and suffer because they didn't have a choice, when the choice is just right there, it's easy, it's accessible, it is safe. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. And to see it disproportionately happen to the people who are already suffering the most in society, these cycles of poverty, these generational trauma cycles Mm -hmm. with intimate partner violence and unsafe communities. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just really difficult. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Okay. I want to end this with, so we had questions from the community, but a lot of them, I feel like we've covered already. So I do want to ask you two of these questions, which is the first one is what local organizations can I support to make a change in what is happening with reproductive rights? This is somebody that's from Texas. So she wanted to ask you that specifically. And then stemming off from that, I had a few people asking if you had any recommendations for a great OBGYN provider in the state of Texas. <laughs> Obviously um, you. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm not going to call it all my friends, but okay. So organization. So for anyone in the country or even internationally, the the best place to donate is NAF or National Abortion Funds. You know, in I can't even tell you, years ago working in Missouri, like when we had a patient who needed an abortion and couldn't afford it, we were calling NAF then. So mm-hmm. these organizations, both local ones, and then usually they're a part, all a part of NAF abortion mm-hmm. funds, they have been helping people for decades get access to abortion financially. They pay for the procedure. They pay for plane tickets. They pay for hotel rooms. They pay for childcare. They pay for meals. So they're really hooked in. And a lot of times like they, 
have a like these funds, these individual places, like have a relationship with the hotel that's just down the street where like people aren't going to be tattling on you or giving you mean Mm -hmm. looks. Like, so, you know, the NAF, there's, you can donate absolutely to your local abortion funds based on there's one and multiple in every state because people also, these funds in California and New York, they need money too, because now they have an influx of people and the ones within the state. Yep. The ones within this, in the restrictive states, they need money too, because they're helping people get somewhere else and working with Mm -hmm. the other ones. So you can donate to your local ones or to NAF if you just like don't know what your local ones are, et cetera. So that's a great place to start. Is it a hundred percent that goes towards? Okay. Yeah. They operate pretty lean and they've, you know, been working and doing on the ground work with true activists for a long time. Mm -hmm. So that's great. The other plug I want to make, and this is both monetary and we just have to pay with our time is you need to get involved in your local politics. We focus so much on what the president and what a few senators and Congress people are doing. And that is important. But so much of this stuff is happening at the state level mm-hmm. that we really need to pay attention to what's happening in our state politics and understand it and get involved. And it's also, I say, some people, it feels bigger because they don't understand it and they don't like under like they're like oh I, that's a big black box easier for me to like look at the new york times and look what's happening nationally but you can have so much more of an effect on a local level you should absolutely know the names and when they're up for re-election of the person representing you in your state legislator both the senate and the house um they are super approachable these people email them ask to get involved in their campaign or their opponent's campaign run for those offices yourself you think that you don't have the qualifications but let me tell you i have spent yeah. time in these state legislatures And if you can form a few words at a time, you are qualified to represent your state in the state legislature because that's what everybody else is doing. Yes. Especially the anti-choice people. So they couldn't tell, you know, they couldn't point to anything on a biology textbook, Mm -hmm. but they're making laws about it. So, so getting really and knowing and trying to make a difference at your state or even your city level. I mean, the city of St. Louis is passing paid family leave and access to abortion. The city of Austin, where I just moved to, is doing the same thing, trying to be a haven for reproductive access in a red state. So local politics, both your money, but also your time. I draw the, I draw the parallel. I can say this now. I didn't talk about where I lived in St. Louis, but I lived literally, I could throw a rock to the only Planned Parenthood offering the only abortion access site in Missouri for many years. Now that one is, uh, you know, probably offering, I don't, I don't know the state of it, maybe none, maybe just before six weeks, I forget, Mm -hmm. but there were protesters out there every single day. (gasps) Oh, 365, yeah. nearly uh, very early in the morning to very late at night, they spent their time doing this. And it took decades. A lot of people were like, Roe v. Wade was overturned. There have been restrictive laws that had been the only abortion provider in the state for many years because of the restrictive laws. These people have spent their time and their money. And for a lot of, I hate to say this, but for a lot of people, this is something they maybe talked to their friends about once or twice or reposted an article on social media. But mm-hmm. it is time. It is time for you to spend time getting involved in local politics, money, uh, phone banking, writing op-eds, talking to friends and family. It is time to start spending time getting our reproductive rights back. So yes, donating to abortion funds is really helpful and starting to be an activist because we owe it Mm -hmm. to our children, um, especially our daughters, to protect their reproductive access. 
Absolutely. I love, love that you just brought up all of that because I, so I am someone who I grew up in a family. We didn't talk about politics. I mean, it was just like, okay, so-and-so is the president. That's literally the end of how much I knew about politics. Okay. Like I could say who the president was. <laughs> and then, you know, you fast forward to about, I would say about 10 years ago when I started to be like, okay, this may, this, this kind of affects the work that I'm doing in the emergency room. This affects my life. This affects so many different things. I need to start paying attention. And most recently within the past couple of years, I have done so much work with myself, with my own self, because I knew nothing about the parties, what they both believed in, trying to figure out who was for what. Then my own state, forget about it. I knew nothing. And so I am, that's like one of my goals. And what I'm striving to do is to really understand that about my own, like you said, your own local officials. And if you want to make change, you can go out there and do it. Um, be, be a part of your school board, be a part of your local boards for whatever it might be. Um, and I wanted to briefly talk about this story. I don't know if you had heard about it. So there's this little town, Croton. It's in New Hampshire. And there was recently, this is just a great example of what you just said. It's a very small town. I think it's like a, like a couple hundred people. It's like so small. And so, you know, they were holding all these board meetings. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's just a few people at these board meetings. No one's really paying attention. Everyone's taking for granted, right? All of these things that are are happening for them behind the scenes because they've always just been, you know, the same and nothing's changed enough for them to get involved. Well, come to find out this tiny, you know, people on the board passed this, you know, bill that said, okay, we're cutting the education budget in half, right? And then it's just like in the newspaper, people find out about it and they're like, what? You're cutting the school budget in half, like our education budget for our children? Like, how could you do this? And so the entire town teamed together and they repealed this and were able to go back to the board. So it was like a couple, you know, this was a lengthy process where they had to repeal it. And then they had to have the amount of numbers of people that that didn't agree with it to be able to go back and vote on it again. And nearly everybody in the town showed up to vote and they overturned it. So, you know, it's That's like awesome. we right? Like we have the ability to do these things. Don't ever for a minute think that you're just one person in a sea of millions and millions of people in the United States of America. Like you have power and it's what you do with it that really matters. So, I I love that you brought yeah. that up. And it's, um it's easy yeah. to look at like, oh, a Supreme Court decision. I can't do anything about a Supreme Court nominee. But like as someone who's lived in Missouri for a while, these laws, it didn't just, it wasn't just this Supreme Court decision. Like these laws have been progressing for, these people have been working for decades to limit this access mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they now have a lot of power and it's a lot of small things. And so, yes, we may not see things change in a year or two years, but we need to start creating the habit of advocacy and activism to crawl back over decades the same way they got what they wanted over decades. And some people, maybe that feels too big, but for me, it actually is the opposite. It feels like, okay, well, we don't have to fix this tomorrow. I mean, I wish, right? But like, mm -hmm. we need to create habits and communities of activism and, and we can. And you know what? I look to hope in like Colombia and Argentina, while we're going backwards in America, a lot of um, Latin American countries who had huge influences from like the Catholic church. Ireland, you know, in the last decade, they've come a long way with reproductive health because of the focus of women saying, 
this is about our health. The only way to protect, you know, prevent pregnant people from dying and experiencing bad health is to let us have access to contraception and abortion and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we have models of people who have gotten, gotten their reproductive rights even recently, and we can do it too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way to end it. A little bit of some hope. Get out there. Hope. Fight for what hope. you want. Hope. Yeah, a little hope. Also, little one hope. other one other positive thing is I, I don't want people thinking if they're having struggle finding access to termination of pregnancy that an unsafe way to go is the only one. There are excellent resources for getting abortion pills online. They're highly effective and highly safe, especially early in pregnancy. My friend Jennifer Lincoln, who's also like on Instagram and YouTube, set up a website called Three for Freedom, um, which helps just have resources to both pregnancy prevention and termination of pregnancy by mail. So, you know, early termination of pregnancy is really safe and and accessible. So that's an option for people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Perez for being with us and educating. And as always, such a pleasure. I'm sure you'll be back sometime to talk about one of these other important topics that we can branch off on. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) For now, wishing you the best of luck with your pregnancy and your delivery for that baby. Thank you. Oh, well, and your fellowship. Thank you. I'm really excited to start. All right. Take care. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.